Hello and welcome to Being Well, I'm Forrest Hansen. If you're new to the podcast, this is where we explore the practical science of lasting well-being. And if you've listened before, welcome back. I'm joined today, as usual, by Dr. Rick Hansen. Rick is a clinical psychologist and a best-selling author, and he's also my dad. So dad, how are you doing today? Most excellent. I'm looking forward to this. Yeah, today we're very excited to be joined by a very special guest, a clinical psychologist and a researcher who has had an enormous influence on the adoption of mindfulness-based practices in therapy, Dr. Zindel Siegel. Dr. Siegel is a distinguished professor of psychology at the University of Toronto Scarborough and one of the creators of mindfulness-based cognitive therapy, or MBCT, alongside Drs. John Teasdale and Mark Williams. He specializes in mood disorders, particularly depression, and has had an enormous influence, truly, on the clinical adoption of mindfulness-based approaches and their addition to more conventional forms of cognitive therapy. So, Zindel, it's great to have you with us today. How are you doing? I'm good. It's a real pleasure, maybe even an overdue pleasure. I'm really looking forward to this. We are as well, and people don't know this, but before we were able to start this podcast, we were jumping through a fair amount of technical hoops based on issues of different kinds on different ends. And and I just thought you were exemplary, and I wish we could have uh, videoed <laughs> that part as a model for grace under pressure and not getting depressed when things don't go that well. So anyway, <laughs> really, uh, I've known of and respected your work for a really long time. I got to know one of your colleagues, Mark Williams, a bit at Oxford yeah. and then at a conference in Hong Kong, and just found him to be a genuinely wonderful being. So some of that halo is extended to you in anticipation here. So I'm looking forward to it. I'll take it. <laughs> well, maybe we could start kind of concretely. Uh, you're well known for mindfulness-based cognitive therapy, in particular for preventing relapse after episodes of severe clinical depression. And maybe you could unpack uh, the acronym MBCT, Mindfulness-Based Cognitive Therapy, and kind of explain it for people in a summary way. And then we can build from there. Yeah, for sure. I think it's really important to understand origin stories. Huh. And in a sense, I kind of see this as a, an invitation to talk about the origin stories. And I think in the origin story that underlies mindfulness-based cognitive therapy, there actually wasn't a lot of talk about mindfulness. There was a lot of talk about therapy, and there's a lot of talk about antidepressants, and there's a lot of talk about biological views of depression. And so in the days when we were beginning to think about this, myself and Mark Williams and John Teasdale, the real debates at the time were whether psychological treatments could have any impact on a disorder that was conceived as being entirely biological. Prozac had just launched, the promise of SSRIs were really providing people with an understanding of depression as a chemical imbalance that antidepressants could address. And it's not to say that that wasn't true, you know, it still is true, but the eclipsing of psychological therapies was a casualty of that. And so a lot of our work tried to make the case that there are lots of things that people can do for themselves to help them come out of a depression. And then as we became increasingly aware of how chronic and recurrent depression was, there was a lot that they could do to stay well. And one of those things happened to be practicing mindfulness meditation. Mm. And so we introduced it at a time when there was a lot of skepticism about you know, meditation and a lot of baggage around that. But we slowly accumulated data that showed that it was effective 
and people started to listen to us. So inside of that framework that you just offered there, which is a great kind of historical background for the work, and I, I do think that that historical grounding is important. Like at the time that you guys were initially doing the research and doing the work to develop this series of interventions, mindfulness was not the like mainstream concept, a mainstream idea that it is kind of today. So I'm just wondering, what was it that drew you to that set of interventions as somebody with a very academic background? Like, I, I don't know yeah. if you have a personal practice or anything like that. Like, what took you yeah. in that direction? Were you contemplating career suicide at the time? <laughs> oh, you know what? That's, that's, that's a phrase that I heard. Yeah. That's a I'm phrase sure that did. I heard. Because in academic psychiatry, you're talking about medication rather than, you know, neurostimulation therapies or adjunctive pharmacotherapies. But, you know, you have to remember, I came out of a cognitive therapy tradition. So did John, so did Mark. And at the time, there was a really important element that all psychotherapies sort of shared and were able to generate for patients. And that was people who benefited from therapy were able to develop some measure of psychological distance to view and experience negative affect. Mm -hmm. So not identifying with negative affect, but having a place to stand and from which they could view anger rising, sadness developing, fear building, and then looking at the choicefulness available to them in those moments. Now, psychotherapy was able to generate that through kind of a haphazard process of when it goes well and you've got a good narrative developing and a good relationship with your therapist, you have a good chance of getting that. In cognitive therapy, things are a little bit more instrumental. The use of thought records, the use of homework meant that you were building up these skills in terms of psychological distance. And the term psychological distance has been called many things in different therapy traditions like decentering, observing ego, cognitive diffusion. But what really drew us in was the possibility that we could train people really, really directly to develop this capacity to watch and observe their experience. And we heard about John Kabat-Zinn's work in chronic pain, where he was doing that. And we kind of recast what John was doing, because he was doing a lot of things, and MBSR has so many elements. But what really drew us in there, the lure, if you will, that we bid on was direct training in decentering skills. And then we thought, well, if people can train themselves this way through the practice of mindfulness meditation, how can we combine that with cognitive therapy to help mm. people become more agentic and looking after themselves when they've recovered from mood disorder? So again, just doing kind of a little bit of quick background here. Uh, we've mentioned cognitive therapy a couple of times. We've talked about CBT, cognitive behavioral yeah. therapy on the podcast a number of times in the past. What is it about a mindfulness-based approach that distinguishes it from more kind of traditional forms of cognitive therapy? Well, in cognitive therapy, I think you have to understand that there are different phases of a disorder and different types of cognitive therapy might be helpful for different phases. So if someone is very, very depressed, then it might be useful to have them examine the validity of certain negative beliefs, certain negative assumptions, to actually look at evidence that supports or doesn't support their framework. And so you get into a view where thoughts become really important and the degree of belief in those thoughts is something that you and your therapist can work on. If people are in recovery, we find that mindfulness allows people not to engage in the content of their thinking, 
but to simply learn how to watch thinking arise in the mind, rest in the mind, and pass through the mind mm. so that they can watch thinking as a process without having to engage. Well, is this thought true? Is this thought not true? What does this mean about me? What does that not mean about me? And so for those people for whom the negative thoughts and the negative judgments may not be as loud as they are in the acute phase, the practice of mindfulness can be very helpful. Now, practice of mindfulness carries a lot more with it, the compassion, the non-judgment, all of those things. But you can get people to relate differently to their thoughts without having to eliminate them or to disprove them if they can just see them as, oh, these are the same old suspects showing up for me again. Oh, here's the same old judgment or here's the same old doubting and discouragement that shows up. And then you have a different relationship to that than it's here and I've got to get rid of it. Otherwise, it's going to take me down. I want to highlight two things you've said and then ask you a question. So first, in effect, cognitive therapy, and I, I'm also a practicing therapist too, so I yeah, borrow sure. some of those methods myself, I draw upon them. In cognitive therapy, you're challenging pathogenic beliefs and so forth. You know, you're just like you're saying, you're trying to disrupt or argue against or even gradually replace certain kinds of beliefs, perspectives, and so forth. While with mindfulness, you're not trying to disrupt particular thoughts per se, you're actually stepping back from the whole streaming of consciousness in a, in a way and, and witnessing and being with it without being swept away by it. So that distinction there. Second, just for people in general, as you well know, major depression is understood in terms of episodes that have a beginning, a middle, and a kind of end, maybe with a fair amount of dysthymia or other kinds of issues in between them, but there's a sort of an episodic quality to it. And you're talking about that really important between phase, since episodes of major depression kindle and facilitate and increase the likelihood of future episodes, trying to exactly. prevent getting sucked in again. Okay, great. Yeah. So in that context, then my question, what is it particularly about depression and all that comes with it that maybe I'm saying this incorrectly, but in effect, makes people particularly susceptible to getting sucked back in based on their reactions to the feelings and thoughts that are arising within them. Right. Yeah, this is really a key question. We had really good evidence to suggest that mood congruent memory has a lot to play with what determines accessible mental content for people that have been depressed. And mood congruent memory is a finding, and it works the same in anxiety as well. Once you've been sad, there are ways in which the memories and the experiences of sadness become encoded in a way that makes them much more easily reawakened when they, people start to feel sad again. So there's a lot of evidence that if you have people who have recovered from depression and you make them feel temporarily sad, like with a, a mood induction that lasts five or 10 minutes. Some of those people in that sadness are going to start endorsing old views of themselves that are very depressogenic. And if you follow those people for 18 months, they're the ones with a much higher risk of relapse than people who they've recovered, they can feel sad, it doesn't sort of bring them down. And so I think one of the big insights in mindfulness-based cognitive therapy is that we can't escape feeling sad. But what we want to try to do is to activate a different pattern of relationship to sadness that doesn't involve a re 
emergence of all of these old views of ourselves. We can watch them arise and try to relate to them differently versus promising if you've recovered from depression, you know, you're going to just be euthymic and feel good for the rest of your life. There's this saying in uh, Buddhist practice, uh, it draws on the ancient word in Pali, the language of early Buddhism. And I, I suspect you know all this already. The word for suffering often uh, is the translation of the word dukkha. Mm. And then there's this phrase, dukkha, dukkha. We suffer that we suffer. And it seems so much that your work is involved with helping people break that link in the chain. You know, unhappiness, sadness, suffering may arise, but then we don't need to react to that reaction. And in that space, there's a kind of freedom. Yeah, I think that that's what we're trying to suggest to people and to help them approach it so that when it does show up, they can see a certain choicefulness that opens up for them. I think that's really well said. And I would love to get into kind of the how of that in terms of the practices yeah. that people do, what actually happens when you're engaging these uh, these different kinds of difficult or pathogenic beliefs, however you want to say it. Yeah. And as a way kind of into that, classic question that we get is some version of, well, if I'm mindful of my sadness, won't that just make me more sad? It's a fair question. You know, people mm -hmm. don't want to get too close in contacting things that make them feel miserable. Yeah. And that's in, a, in some ways what you're inviting. Yeah. So when I think of that, um, one of the things that I think of as a teacher is I, I wonder how well people know their sadness. When they say, I don't want to you know, feel sad, they don't want to feel the idea of sadness. Or to what extent are they really feeling it in their bodies? Are they able to recognize the signature of sadness? And if they are, are they willing to explore what those sensations are actually doing on a moment-by-moment -moment basis, noticing their qualities? And is there a discrepancy between what their experience of sadness is in that moment and the thoughts and the predictions and the mind states that tell them that this sadness is unbearable, it will last forever, there's nothing they can do about it. Very often, the lens of watching it in the body moment to moment may suggest a different relationship to sadness that's possible. Mm. And that's a starting point for knowing sadness differently, not for pushing it away, but for moving out of only knowing it through, you know, a concept or an idea-based vision of sadness. Mm -hmm. That's remarkable. You're focusing on, or in effect saying, it's not the sadness that's the issue. It's the thoughts about the sadness or other kinds of reactions to the sadness that's really the issue. And in effect, you're helping people tolerate the sadness without engaging all that other baggage about it. Right. And in a way, moving into the sadness and, and to do that in session five of MBCT, for example, we talk about allowing and letting be as a stance. And really, it's about approaching aversion. And whether that aversion is in the mind because of ideas about what sadness is versus the actual experience um, or other, other things, that's what we're encouraging people to, to meet and to approach with curiosity and kindness. To be able to tolerate their sadness and probably other things as well without moving yeah. into, quote-unquote, aversion, the fighting of it or the pushing away of it yeah. or getting alarmed yeah. by it. Yeah. And, and, and if they do, recognizing that, that there's a choice that they could make even in those moments and it's an ongoing process of engagement with kindness and curiosity, those two stances are antithetical to aversion. Mm. Kindness and curiosity. 
being antithetical yeah. to aversion. Yeah. 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 Would you apply this to other emotions as well, uh, such as despair or irritability? Force has made the point that younger people mm-hmm. tend toward more irritability in their presentation of yeah. depressed mood. Yeah. Could you say more about that? I would. I mean, I think it's a universal principle. I think what we've done is to try to, you know, wrap it up inside the world of mood disorders and speak about it there. We, we haven't gone like really big and wide cast it as something that's applicable to everything. But I think in many ways it is. When it comes to the world of emotions, we can know our emotions through the cognitive labels we place on them. And very often that bypasses an experience of an emotion in the body, which can actually give us a different readout on what's happening compared to what our minds are telling us. And, and you, you both probably know in, in, in the Zen world, there is a huge emphasis on bypassing the mind to provide its commentary on what your experience is and much more of a, an appetite for direct experience. So, you know, you wake up in the morning, the first thing you do is you don't lie in bed and think about what's on your schedule for 10 or 15 minutes. You put your feet on the ground and you stand up. And it's that direct experience of, of you know, waking up that I think we're trying to aim for here when it comes to depression or sadness or irritability being present. The mind will offer its commentary. What does it feel like in the body? Where in the body? Can you be curious? Can you be kind about what you're finding? And then that's your starting point. Mm-hmm. That's really lovely. And I think it's a great framing for everything we kind of talk about from here on out. Mm. Because of course, like you were saying, the the research that you did was focused in the arena of mood disorders and specifically depression and sadness and BCP yeah. as a treatment for these things. But these are general principles also. Yeah. And we might have people listening right now who don't hit the formal qualifications for major depressive disorder. But people go through periods of sadness in the course of just about every human life. These are general skills that can be applicable for those periods. They're also general skills that can help people deal with anxiety, anger, fear. Yeah. Variety of different common sensations that tend to uh, to steal the language from Buddhism, that tend to invade the mind and remain. It's one of my favorite quotes. And to kind of get us into that, I would love to ask just a little bit more about the structure and of MBCT and what people actually do when they engage in these practices. You mentioned, for instance, in session five or in week five of MBCT, it's an eight-week program in general in terms of how it's set up, as far as I'm aware, both in terms of helping somebody determine whether or not this sort of a program might be good for them, but also just in the pursuit of teaching general skills. What are some of the major headlines in terms of the practices that people take on, and the skills that you try to teach. So I think that's great. And I I really appreciate the opportunity to talk in a bit more detail. One of the core insights that we had was we want to give people a chance to practice on a daily basis, something that may or may not be saturated with negative affect, but would still provide them with the tools to respond to negative affect, even if it showed up in their lives once our course was over or six months down the road. So the practice of mindfulness meditation is built in from the get-go. And we'll start with mindful eating, and then we'll start with a body scan. And in some ways, you could say that the first four weeks of mindfulness-based cognitive therapy is devoted to increasing the awareness of automatic pilot, to highlighting experientially the differences between doing and being, activities that have an outcome, activities that really have no outcome other than their own intrinsic participation. 
and the curiosity and observation of phenomena in the body and in the mind and in the movement of these experiences when they are being observed without judgment. And the themes of resting, arising, resting, and passing through the mind, starting with sensations in the body, moving to sounds, moving to thoughts, moving to thoughts that have an emotional charge. And then we start to layer in cognitive therapy practices related to educating people about symptoms of depression. So, you know, there's some, quote, legitimate symptoms like loss of appetite, increased sleepiness or restlessness, but other symptoms of depression, such as negative and judgmental thoughts about self, are seen not as legitimate. They're not neurovegetative, but they actually often precede new episodes of depression. And people need to recognize that as the possibility of not something about me that needs to be fixed, but something of a warning sign that, hey, my depression may be coming back. Maybe I need to check in with someone about this. Not a personal weakness, but part of like an overall package of symptoms that might be kind of knocking at my door. Mm. Uh, so there's that some, some of that education. And then there's a little bit of relapse planning. Well, like what happens if I do relapse? What can I do? And we get people to make lists of activities and we even get them to write a letter. This non-depressed version of yourself speaking to a potentially depressed version of yourself. What advice would you have? What would you say to them? So there's a lot of how can I best take care of myself? You gave in that a great overview of different practices that I think people could probably add to their lives just as a general (laughs) principle sort of thing for a variety of different challenges. I'm not uh, trying to ask you to choose from among your children here, (laughs) but if there was kind of a single practice that you think most people would be benefited by adding to their day, their daily routine, you know, something that they can do in five to 15 minutes most days, what would it be? So if you'd asked me this question 20 years ago, I'd have a different answer for you than the one I have today. Mm. Uh, 20 years ago, it would have been, you know, 40 minute sitting meditation. Pretty hardcore. Yeah. Yeah. Just like the basic, basic. And I've been taught through interactions with a lot of uh, people in our groups that that rarely happens. Yeah. Once the groups are over, the reality is, and so why why continue to dream about something that actually doesn't really mm. come about? So I would say it's really the three minute breathing space, mm. which is a portable encapsulation of much of the attention training that we've taught people in MBCT, and that has the capacity to be a anywhere to range anywhere from a basic grounding practice to a practice that allows people to anticipate or recover from uh, challenging events. This is a big ask, but would you be willing to teach it to Forrest and me right now and maybe take us through it? Yeah, just kind of walk us through it. You know what? I was I was just about to suggest that we do it as a practice and then we can, you know, kind of see what it's like from the inside. That'd be great. Yeah. Thank you. Okay. So how I would guide it is actually to say that the first thing we want to do, and I can see you're both already doing it on camera here, is... We want to shift our bodies. We want to sit in a way that allows us to embody the intentions, even for these three minutes of being awake and being alert. So that might mean just adjusting your body a little bit, maybe sitting up a little bit, or just just noticing even how you're sitting. If you feel comfortable letting your eyes close, or maybe just finding a spot a few feet in front of you and watching it or holding it with a soft and steady gaze. 
and tuning into sensations of sitting just as you find them. And the first step of the three-minute breathing space asks you to look into the mind, perhaps becoming curious about your experience right now, noticing any thoughts that are here, any feelings that are present, any bodily sensations that might make themselves known. And just holding them in awareness, watching and observing them from one moment to the next, not needing to change or alter them in any way. And now seeing if you can let go of the contents of mind and bringing your attention to a single pointed focus on the breath at the belly and feeling breathing in this part of the body with the belly rising as you breathe in, lifting, expanding, and the belly falling as you breathe out, contracting and returning. And seeing if you can stay with this gentle rhythm of rising and falling, breathing in and breathing out, moment by moment as best you can. And now seeing if you can expand your attention around the breath and around the belly, allowing your attention to radiate outwards into the whole body and feeling the whole body sitting and feeling the whole body breathing from the crown of your head to the soles of your feet, one whole breath, one whole body. And then when you feel ready, just allowing your eyes to gently open and returning your attention back to the room. What did you notice about that practice? You want to go first, Forrest? You're the... Sure, yeah. You're more of a civilian I'm I'm the guinea pig here a little bit more, exactly, (laughs) right? So, no, I I mean, really loved it, for starters. Mm. Very similar to, like you were kind of describing, a sort of condensed version of some of the sitting meditations and sitting practices that I've done before. I have a semi-regular morning practice, and I'm kind of the classic example of that person who, you know, 30, 40 minutes of sitting is a big ask, but I could probably rally myself toward this three-minute practice, which had the benefits of feeling lovely and getting me into a lot of the body sensations that I generally associate with those longer-term meditative practices. Of course, not quite the same thing, but a lot of the similar body sensations. And for me, I just notice because I'm somebody who has a little bit of a higher tone personality, I tend a little bit more toward anxiety, Mm -hmm. is that initially when I'm entering into practices like that, there's often this little kind of anxious flutter that comes up in the body, this little like bird or this little, uh, you know, it's almost like there's a part of the body that's like hanging on to that sort of an experience and doesn't really want to relax into the practice. Mm-hmm. Um, and so that's something that I, I often feel, which is really interesting and makes me ask a lot of questions internally about the nature of that part and what its function is. I don't know. How about you, Dad? Well, I loved it. I was very struck, Zindel, by the clarity and sort of essential summary nature of your instructions. Yeah. 
a thing I was particularly struck by was the progression from establishing basic mindfulness, you know, sustained present moment awareness, internally directed, then moving into a focused body sensation in the in the belly, okay? And yeah. then the movement out to the body as a whole. I've been very mm. struck by that. And I've learned something about what happens neurologically when we go out to the gestalt, to the thing as a whole, including ways that that tends to disrupt activity in the default mode network, thus negativistic rumination that could lead people into a depressive spiral. So that sense of the body as a whole and breathing as a whole, it's just really powerful. It just feels really different. The mind gets, my mind at least, or I think the mind gets quieter and more at ease. Mm-hmm. And less self-referential when we go out to the sense of things as a whole, including the body as a whole. Yeah, I mean, I think that's it's always interesting to, to get feedback from people, even even people who struggle with it, because I think two things that you said, Rick, the precision and also the three steps. I think you also commented on that for us. The three steps are they're all there for a reason. Yeah. Because as we're trying to work with mindfulness meditation, we're trying to give people a message that there are ways of practicing two different types of attention. So for us, when you sit for 30 or 40 minutes, there are ways in which your attention initially may be a little bit more concentrated, settling, grounding, getting present. And then you might allow your mind to kind of open up in a way where it's open monitoring, choiceless, you're letting things go in. This practice, an image that I sometimes use when I teach, is to think of an hourglass. An hourglass has a very wide opening, and then it's got a narrowing at the middle, and then it's got a wide opening again. And the two types of attention that we're cycling through here in three minutes, give or take, although I have to say on the CD, the three-minute breathing space is more like five minutes in real time, <laughs> but we'll not, we're, we're going we're gonna to keep that three-minute uh, label. So basically, you're giving people the chance to cycle through two different types of attention, open and concentrated and open again. And that can be, as I think, you know, you've talked about default mode network, that can be a way of helping people step out of automatic pilot by being more deliberate in how they're paying attention. And because it's three minutes, you know, people can do it anywhere. I've, I've, I've heard a lot of people doing it in very interesting places, including toilet stalls. <laughs> I work. <laughs> <laughs> I, I want to follow up on what you're saying here, Sindel, just like right now, because also my dad said something a second ago that just really cued me into this when he started, as you were saying, to talk about the default mode network and what's actually going on inside of us functionally when we're doing practices like that. One of the things that you really emphasized in research you did back in the 90s is this role of attentional control. I dug up some research of yours from 1995. Yeah. And you mentioned attention several times right there in terms of these different kinds of attention, this aspect of attentional control. Why is that such an important tool for somebody particularly who suffers from recurrent depressive episodes? So this actually gets me back to the career suicide comment that you made. totally. Our first grant that we received from NIH had the title, Attentional Control Training. Mm, mm -hmm. We didn't have the guts to write mindfulness because we also thought we'd never get funded. Mm. So what we did was we put attentional control and then in parentheses, mindfulness training for prevention of depressive relapse. 
Yeah. And we had a model of attentional selectivity and automatic pilot and, and mood dependent memory. Basically, um, any mood disorder and a, a lot of the emotional disorders um, have a way of very efficiently hijacking attention mm. and bringing it to a conceptual representation of what is our experience. And then if your resources are going there and if that's being played out in the mind, then there's very little attentional resources that are left to actually investigate in the body in this moment what's really happening, moment by moment, sensation by sensation. And so trainings like the body scan enable people to do that for themselves, you know, and they can be boring and they can be tedious, but at the same time, they're asking people to spend a little bit of time feeling anything that might be sensation in your calf muscle or in your thigh or in your lower abdomen, places where people often don't attend, but very often are the first place that emotions do show up. So a tightness in the neck might be quickly labeled as, oh, that's where I'm carrying my stress. But a tightness in the neck can also be an invitation. I wonder what this really feels like if I pay attention to it and I'm curious about it. Mm. And then you can develop a different relationship to the tightness. This is maybe a way for me to segue to something I've been wondering about in terms of attentional control. So we have both the capacity to disengage our attention from what's problematic, what's harmful, such as getting hijacked by, or as you put it, automatic pilot by mm. depressogenic thoughts, ruminations, and related emotions. Okay. So we have the ability to pull attention away, achieved in part a lot through mindfulness training. Great. Then we have the related capacity through attentional control training to sustain attention to what's helpful and useful. And I was thinking about the vulnerability of many people who are prone to depression to feelings of inadequacy. And as you said, the ways in which thoughts about self-criticism can be an early indicator, the prodromal subtle movement yeah. into the depressive episode and how to deal with that. And so I started to wonder to what extent have you found it useful to deliberately help people sustain attention to typically simple, everyday, genuine, factually based good news or positive emotions or emotionally positive experiences so that increasingly they're able to rest there and they're not so afraid of resting there. And also potentially through positive neuroplasticity, they gradually cultivate a more positive resting state in their mood altogether. Do you find that that is helpful alongside the mindfulness training? So I think there's an explicit and an implicit answer to that question. I think the implicit answer is that there's some good data that mindfulness actually enhances the capacity for hedonic tone. Mm. So people can very naturally start to take pleasure in things that are simple and available to them. But I think that there's such a, I guess it's kind of like a taboo now that I think of it, in our classes to promise or direct people towards the positive versus getting them to simply observe and catalog and then make choices for themselves that we tend not explicitly to push them there. It's much more about whatever's showing up, not that's good, let's have more of that. It's like, oh, you're noticing that or you're noticing that. And then what choices do you have in front of you? Yeah, I had a conversation about this actually with Mark Williams a while ago, and, and I was kind of nudging him also a little bit in this direction, which is yeah. very on brand for me. 
as far as we put it. <laughs> and uh, he said, well, a fair number of people in this population are extremely vulnerable to self-criticism yeah. and feelings of failure. Yeah. So in effect, mindfulness, just sustained open presence is a fairly easy ask, although there's definitely some training there. But to go a step further, like with regard to those feelings of inadequacy and socially centered shame, let's say, that is so common among people who are depressed, to particularly direct people toward paying attention to ordinary experiences of positive connection with others, in which they're caring toward others and others are caring toward them. He said, you know, Rick, for some people, that's too much of an ask. That's too much of an ask. So I, I really took that on board and I've thought about it a lot since. I do wonder, though, for the people for whom it's not too much of an ask, you know, they're more stabilized. Mm -hmm. They're out of the depressive episode. Mm -hmm. They've been increasingly resourced in other ways. It just seems to me that it would be helpful to engage a practice essentially of cultivation in which there's an openness to authentic, beneficial, positive experiences, especially of social support and self-worth, yeah. to gradually, slowly, but surely build up a kind of layered emotional memories of that kind mm -hmm. with associated beliefs of that kind particularly for those who can do that without turning it into a big performance agenda that then they feel like they're falling short yeah, of. Yeah, they can't live up to. Yeah. I mean, we do hear a little bit of that in session eight, which is the last session, yeah. where we ask people to develop positive reasons to continue their practice once the course is over. Mm -hmm. um, we try to have a way of recommending something beyond the course that's going to continue to be live for them. And often they'll say the incentives for practice would be connecting with other people or being a better parent or being more available to, um, you know, for my partner. Often there's social incentives mm. and, and we try to emphasize that and then get people to, to make note of them as supporting their practice. Talking a little bit here about things that help people maintain the practice, keep on doing the work. Yeah. A lot of what you've been describing so far are very active skills. You know, you are actively doing the three to five minute meditation practice or the watching the breath, the three phases, the whole thing. And one of the major features of depression is lethargy and disinterest of different kinds, like difficulty getting out of bed in the morning, difficulty engaging with regular habits that you find positive, mm -hmm. lack of engagement, lack of interest, so on. How do you work to motivate and kind of inspire people who experience depression to engage these practices for long enough to get to change? I might not have them do any of these practices until mm. their executive functioning you know, control networks are actually available to them. Mm. If they're shut down by depression, the last thing I'd want yeah. to do is ask someone to sit for 30 minutes. Yeah, totally. They can't concentrate or read a paper. Yeah. But... But I think it's a great question because what I might suggest is how about five minutes of mindful stretching? Mm, how about mm -hmm. mindful walking? Things that are engaging not through a cognitive cortical capacity, but just through the body, walking and moving, and then paying attention to the sensations that are created with that for no other reason than just you know having the experience. Those are smaller dose things that I might do. And it sort of falls along the line of activation behavioral activation. Do you turn people towards social support very much? Um, yeah, yeah, that's a big thing. And in some ways, you know, there was even a debate in, in the mindfulness-based cognitive therapy groups, how much of it is the practice of meditation and how much of it is just people sitting together in a room with other folks who look just like them, 
by and large, and then start talking about, you know, suicidal ideation or unworthiness mm. or, or embarrassment or shame or failure. And they are feeling a sense of uh, normalization of the way their minds work because they're able to see that many people, in a sense, have the same mind. And also destigmatization because everyone is working to deal with something which we, I think, try to message to them is seen as a clinical disorder. It's not the fact that your personality is a bit inadequate and you just need to change or fix it. It's like, it's like the common cold. There are a bunch of symptoms mm. that are going to show up. You're going to be in bed sneezing with a fever for a couple of days, and then you'll be you know, able to go back to work. Depression also can be seen as a package or a syndrome. And when it shows up, it's going to show up in these different ways. It has already shown up in your life. What are some of the warning signs or the signatures that you can recognize? That kind of stuff. Do you teach people self-compassion? We do, not in the explicit way. But I think from the get-go, what our practices are infused with, saturated with, and I think the instructors try to embody, is this kindness and curiosity, which if people are able to practice on themselves, is already a massive honoring of their experience. And so using language in the meditation itself, things like, and now if you're willing, Mm. and when you feel ready, and then you know, the emphasis on non-judgment, all of these things drip into every practice that we guide. And in accepting people who, when they're talking about struggle or even asking explicitly in the group, did anyone struggle with the three-minute breathing space? Because there are a lot of people who say, oh, this is great. And, you know, I feel wonderful. So making room for all of that is, uh, I think, an important implicit way now, what we don't do is use more explicit means of generating self-compassion. And, you know, there's, there's been a bit of back and forth about that, but it's what it is. <laughs> I don't think we avoid it. I think we provide it, but not in the formulaic way that's described. So MBCT, the way you do it is an eight-week group-based program. Yeah. Right. Okay, good. Just to make that clear for people. Yeah. And around it and after it, what do you find that people might also do to build on what they've gained from MBCT, maybe to enhance it or bring in other elements that are not foregrounded in MCT, MBCT itself? Because you have a finite amount of time in these eight weeks in the, yeah. the groups, you have to make choices. Uh, what else helps? I think for us, you know, it might be a bit of a myopic focus, but we, we try to find out what type of ongoing mindfulness practice or contemplative practice people might engage with after the group. Mm -hmm. So, you know, maybe they'll end up going to like a yoga class. Maybe they'll sit, maybe they'll just be able to connect with their breathing or before they eat a meal, just stop. Those are some of the things that I hear people doing more frequently. Then there's the weekend warriors, you know, who maybe once a week might sit for 40 minutes. And then I think that the other types of supports that, that people have Some of them might pursue a self-compassion group or go into therapy. I think what's really interesting is that what people do afterwards is it's not what we think they do. I mean, we used to have graduate groups that we offered once a month. I would be leading them. What better attraction could that be? Yes. (laughs) Yes. Right. And then you'd have one or two people showing up. Yeah. And we treated 200 people and and like one or two people showed up. Eight people maybe showed up, seven people. Like there wasn't a lot of traction that those kinds of graduate 
groups provided. And I don't know whether it was because people had to come back to the hospital. I don't know whether it's because they weren't looking for another group. They were looking for something more customized. I don't think we've really figured that out yet. How to, how to sort of maintain mm. over and above people's own ingenuity, some way of, of keeping them you know, boosted up and keeping the work going. Yeah, so you just asked a big question there. You know, how do we get from treating them in the moment to sustaining yeah. those gains over time or even adding more good stuff in? Yeah. And one of the questions that I really like asking people who come on the podcast that we talk to, who come from a background relatively similar to yours, like you're so involved in the research and the thinking about this and frankly, like the thought leadership around it, whatever you want to call it. What are some of the questions or maybe like what's a question that's really kind of drawing your attention these days? Like, what do you what do you hope that we'll be able to figure out in the next five to 10 years having to do with these questions? I hope that we can figure out the puzzle of access. Mm, yeah. I think access is like super limited. Yeah. You know, I mean, during the election, the US election, even here in Canada, we were glued to CNN. And I don't know if you, and, and my wife's an American, so we were also watching it for that reason, but... Mm-hmm. In the bottom left-hand corner of the CNN coverage of the election, there was a little thumbnail ad by Calm. Ah. And it said, do nothing for 30 seconds. Mm. And it would just be a, a countdown timer. And, you know, that's some pretty expensive advertising real estate. Yeah, totally. That's easy for people to access. Calm, Headspace. But there is a message inside that, which is meditation is a way of relaxing. Mm. Meditation is a way of getting to like chill place. And MBCT is really not about that. I mean, yeah, you will be able to feel calm and relaxed if you close your eyes and sit. And, but it's much more about this approaching the aversion yeah. that is carried by negative affect and finding a way of working with it. And, and right now, there's not a lot of access to these programs. And so we've been working to try to bring some of these resources online. And I think that for for me and I think for other people, that's going to be the next revolution. I think in a weird kind of upside down world way, COVID has helped to legitimize the remote delivery of care. Mm -hmm. So having access that way is an option. But I think that's the big nut to crack going forward. Yeah. No, I, I think you're totally right on. I couldn't agree with you more. It's it's something that in our extremely small way on the podcast, we're trying to help with Absolutely. to a degree in terms of yeah psychoeducation and all of that. And podcasts are a great way to do it. Yeah, I, I thank you so much for taking the time to talk with us today, Zindel. It was a total pleasure. We got to let you go. But again, just thanks for your time. Totally mutual. Thank you very much. A pleasure to meet you. I want to add that I actually got personal value from this. Yeah. In a way that touched my heart and budged my own, you know, my own messy mind. And I just want to thank you for that at a very human level. Thanks. That's great. Thanks very much. Keep up the good work. Today, we had a fantastic time talking with Dr. Zindel Siegel. He's a professor of psychology and one of the creators of mindfulness-based cognitive therapy. MBCT is an eight-week group therapy program aimed specifically at helping people who suffer from depression and depressive relapse. That being said, one of the points that we began the conversation with was the idea that while these skills are aimed at people who suffer from depression, the tools that are taught in a mindfulness-based cognitive therapy context 
are broadly useful tools. They can help you out if you are struggling with anxiety or anger, fear, whatever else it is that's bothering you these days. That's my belief. I don't know if Zindel would endorse that view formally or not, but I just think that these tools are so generally useful and apply to a wide variety of circumstances and situations. One of the things that was emphasized throughout the conversation is the importance of the relationship that a person forms with the challenging emotions that they're experiencing. A lot of the time when an emotion appears in our mind or a thought appears in our mind more generally, we begin to immediately label it and draw inferences about it. Zindel had a point toward the end of the conversation where he mentioned something along the lines of, oh, I'm feeling tension in my neck that must be from stress. But you can see how that's a kind of leap. There is tension, that must mean it's stress. But what happens if instead of attributing stress to the tension, we're just present with the tension? We allow it to unfold in our awareness. We get curious about it. And maybe we even have a little bit of compassion or kindness, a kind of warm-hearted tone that's associated with it. Can we hold all of those things in our mind simultaneously without judging them negatively. Everyone is going to have experiences in life that cause them to get sad. That's just part of the normal human experience. So the question isn't how do we get rid of sadness, but rather how do we relate to our sadness when it appears? One of the things that MBCT emphasizes is attentional control, the ability to control where our attention rests. And the reason for that, as Zindel said, is because mood disorders of various kinds have this uncanny ability to grip and control our attention for us. The depression starts to decide where our attention rests. So reclaiming control of that attention can be a great way to form a different kind of relationship with our sadness or with our depression altogether. And there are a variety of interventions in MBCT that rely on a person having a degree of attentional control, which is why I thought it was really interesting that when Zindel talked about somebody who was actively in a depressive episode, and maybe these cognitive skills that are taught weren't as accessible to them for a variety of different reasons, he went to the body. He went to, can you do some mindful walking? Can you be with your somatic experience in a different kind of way that's maybe accessible to you when those more cognitive tools are beyond your reach. Zindel laid out a variety of tools and practices that are taught in mindfulness-based cognitive therapy that people might find generally useful. And he particularly emphasized this kind of three-ish minute, three minute, five minute, who knows, breathing-focused meditation that he then walked Rick and me through. And I gotta say, it was really fantastic. I found it personally useful. I'm probably going to add it to my morning routine and I would recommend it to just about anybody. I had this interesting experience during it where I found that about 60 seconds in, I had this sort of soft feeling somatically in my body of anxiety kind of rising inside of me. Like there was a part of me that didn't want to let go of that and rest in a more open, soft, relaxed, attentional state. I don't know if that was because I was recording a podcast while I was doing the practice or if it says something else about my mental state, the way that I relate personally to those kinds of relaxed states. Maybe it says something about the kind of tone that I carry in myself just habitually on a day-to-day -day basis without really thinking about it. 
And that's definitely something that I'm going to reflect on a little bit. And I'm curious if maybe you had a similar experience. We talked for a while about what's actually happening in the brain when these mindfulness practices are going on. And I want to really just emphasize a key point here. It's pretty common for people to hear the word mindfulness and think that they're going in a kind of woo, spiritual, new age sort of direction. As I'm sure was apparent from our conversation, Zindel is not a new agey type in his presentation, in his seriousness, in the level of his academic rigor. And I think that it's really great to have these conversations that are focused on the how mechanisms of these practices that can sometimes start to feel a little ephemeral. At the very end of the conversation, Zindel made a key point that I just want to emphasize. So many of the challenges that we have in the mental health world these days get to access. How do we put these tools, trainings, techniques in front of the people who need them most? It's something that we definitely are hoping to help with in a small way through the podcast, but it is an immense challenge that is facing the field of mental health as a whole. I hope you enjoyed today's conversation with Zindel Siegel. I'd also invite you to check out the website Mindful Noggin, which is where you can access a lot of these MBCT-based tools, trainings, and techniques. I've included a link to that in the description of today's podcast. You can check it out there. You can also probably just Google it, and hopefully it'll come up for you. If you've been enjoying the podcast, we'd really appreciate it. If you would take a moment to subscribe to it through the platform of your choice, maybe even leave a rating and a positive review, and hey, tell a friend about it. It really does help us reach more people. If you'd like to support the podcast in other ways, you can find us on Patreon. It's patreon.com slash beingwellpodcast. And for just a few dollars a month, you can support the show and receive a variety of bonuses in return. Once again, thank you so much for listening to the podcast and we'll talk with you soon.